This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 54, titled Sex Workers, wherein we discuss the authoress, the usherette, and the editrix with the lady professor. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. So, Bob, you may have heard recently that Harper Lee is publishing a new book, Harper Lee being the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, which came out in 1960, back when you were just a little tyke. She is now publishing her second novel. Was that with a T? Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, tyke with a T. T-Y-K-E, I believe. Yeah, some literary executor found the manuscript in her late sister's safety deposit box or something like that. And now all of a sudden, Harper Lee, who had not been heard from for 55 years, has got a sequel or a prequel to To Kill a Mockingbird, kind of a, uh, a literary treasure. Whether it's any good remains to be seen, but momentous, I guess. Yeah, so recently I was doing a Google search about this story because I wanted to learn more. To Kill a Mockingbird, of course, is a book that I read and loved when I was a kid. The sequel or prequel, as it were, is called Go Set a Watchman. And in searching for articles about this, I came across a piece from the student newspaper of the University of Notre Dame and St. Mary's. And the very first paragraph goes like this. If you have any interest in the book industry at all, you've probably heard that Harper Lee is publishing a new book. 
Yes, the great Harper Lee, perhaps the greatest one-hit wonder of the American literary canon, the almighty authoress of To Kill a Mockingbird, is publishing a sequel 55 years after her Pulitzer Prize winning novel. Really? From 2015? (laughs) February 2015, from somebody who is an undergraduate, I think. I'm not going to name any names. This is not intended to embarrass anyone. But somebody who is, I believe, an undergraduate at the University of Notre Dame, using the word authoress. It really struck me. Oh, my stars. (laughs) Yeah. It it has to be intentional. It's some sort of... I mean, who knows what the motivation is, but it's not a construction that you often see anymore, which I guess is why we're going to have this whole conversation to begin with, right? Yeah. So back in the very beginning of this podcast, we did a series of three episodes about grammar and gender. And I think we only glancingly, if at all, talked about these endings such as S-E-S-S or et or tricks, as in aviatrix, or editrix, as you mentioned in the intro, these endings that designate certain words, certain professions as feminine. Not just as feminine. In some cases, explicitly diminishing females relative to their male counterparts, because et is, you know, a smaller version of whatever it's an et of. Right. Et is not only feminizing in English, but it's more strictly a diminutive, right, in French. Yep. So in coming across this, I guess you'd call it anachronistic occurrence of authoress, because in general, although some of these words are still around, of course, like waitress and actress and others, in general, they've fallen out of fashion. And even the ones that are still around I think, are becoming less and less common. And you might add also some of them have long since been deemed quite problematic, uh, especially for those on the distaff side. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which, is, which is another way to segregate and diminish women. Yes. Oh, my God. But I wanted to talk about these endings and the arc of their development over time, because if you remember from those episodes we did on grammar and gender, English, like the Romance languages of today, English once upon a time, Old English, that is, had gender. That is, nouns were either masculine or feminine. That started to disappear when Old English gave way to Middle English, and then it finally dissipated altogether. But there was yet another ending that designated certain nouns as specifically female back in Old English, and we'll get to that as well. So I thought we would talk to Ann Curzan, who we spoke to then. She is a professor at the University of Michigan and author of Gender Shifts in the History of English and, more recently, How English Works, a kind of introductory textbook. And I thought she could answer some of the questions that I know I have about when and why these endings arose and whether or not they always seemed as condescending as they do to us today, unless perhaps you're an undergraduate at the University of Notre Dame. (laughs) And there's the subtle question within a question of whether condescension itself was self-aware but deemed appropriate. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to call someone a suffragette without being condescending. And yet, it seems like everybody did so with their eyes wide open. Yeah, and in fact, 
I believe, and perhaps Anne will know the answer to this, I believe that suffragette was coined by a man with the purpose of being condescending. And there you are. Right. So, yeah, I look forward to this conversation. It'll be delightful to have Anne back because, you know, she takes us back to our roots. Yes, she does. And she's fabulous. So I'll bring her on now. Anne, welcome back to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be back. So I want to read to you a very brief passage by a woman named Mamie Meredith, who was a writer and teacher at the University of Nebraska in the middle, early 20th century. And she published a paper in the linguistics journal that I'm sure you're familiar with called American Speech. I believe it's still around. Yes, it is. It was titled Doctresses, Authoresses, and Others. And she wrote this. As soon as woman got out of her rightful place as mistress of a home, she began to make trouble for those who had to mention her unwanted doings. What to call a woman who usurped man's place in the pulpit, in the practice of medicine, in the editing of periodicals, in the writing of books, in the jury box, and on the field of battle, was a problem for the mid-19th century American writer and speaker. She then goes on to say that the ultra-chivalrous American gentleman solved this problem by stigmatizing women workers wherever he could with the suffix S. So let's start there with the suffix S, E-S-S, that is appended to words like author and poet and Jew even to denote the female of the species. When did this ending arise in English and why? The ending E-S-S comes into English with a set of French words, such as countess, duchess, hostess. And once those words are in the language, the suffix becomes something that English speakers start using to attach to other words. So first we borrow these ESS words, and then we start using the suffix. In French, and I guess in other Romance languages that have gender suffixes, this is not explicitly diminishing. It's just plain French grammar. Right. So it's the feminine suffix. And as we see in some of these titles where you're describing the male-female pairing with a count and a countess, a duke and a duchess, a prince and a princess, once those words are available and English speakers can see the pattern where ESS is clearly marking feminine, then it starts to attach to other words. In the 14th century, we see dwelleris, which is created in English, and we see goddess, taking the native English word god and adding the ESS. Wow, so goddess only dates to around the 14th century? The first citation in the Oxford English Dictionary is 1387. And we have a slew of ESS words that come in and die, so tailoress, instructress, entertainess. Those are all words that are no longer around. Authoress, poetess, songstress, they've been retained longer and have been contested at least for 200 years, probably a little bit longer. Dennis Barron, in his book, Grammar and Gender, cites Joseph Priestley, who was writing a grammar in the mid-18th century, so 1761, who already was rejecting poetess and saying, we really don't need that. Women poets are just poets. Rejecting it on the grounds that we don't need to distinguish between a male poet and a female poet. Let's just call them all poets. Yes, but this has been debated through 
to some extent the present day, although I think the debate is abating. But in the early 20th century, H.W. Fowler was more of a fan of the ESS endings of distinguishing male from female. Yeah, and in fact, Fowler in his 1926 Dictionary of Modern English Usage, which is the famous style guide that he wrote at the beginning of the 20th century, he issued what he called a counter-protest against those women who objected to the ESS ending. He said, and I'll quote from him, he said, the authoress, poetess, and paintress, and sometimes the patroness and the inspectress, take exception to the indication of sex in these designations. They regard the distinction as derogatory to them and as implying inequality between the sexes. An author is an author, they say. That is all that concerns any reader, and it is impertinent curiosity to want to know whether the author is male or female. Their view is that the female author is to raise herself to the level of the male author by asserting her right to his name. Wow, Mike. Now, I am neither linguist nor linguette, but that guy's a dick. It's assuming that the unmarked term, the neutral term, author, is synonymous or belongs to men, as opposed to that the unmarked term belongs to everyone. And briefly explain, for those who don't remember or don't know, what the terms marked and unmarked refer to in this context. So the unmarked term in linguistics would be considered the neutral term, the base term for referring to something. So in this case, author. And then the marked term would be the term where, for example, something is added in order to specify so authoress specifying that it is female. So the question with this ESS words has been, why do we need to mark gender on this? If we have a term like author or poet or singer or doctor, why in the world do we have to specify that when it's a woman, then we say it's an authoress or a poetess? And Fowler's exactly right in pinpointing the argument, which is that many of us feel that there's something demeaning about putting that ESS on as if you're not a real author or a real poet, you're an authoress or a poetess. Although he's on the wrong side of the argument, as far as you're concerned. He is. He's quoting the opposition to shoot it down. Right. And in fact, he makes the case that there should be more, not fewer, not none of these ESS words I'll quote from him again. He says, With the coming extension of women's vocations, feminines for vocation words are a special need of the future. Everyone knows the inconvenience of being uncertain whether a doctor is a man or a woman. And the great thing is that Fowler is on the wrong side of history because what we have opted for is for the generic terms. If you think about something like waiter and waitress, what we have chosen to do instead is server. And we've chosen flight attendant instead of stewardess. So, in fact, whether Fowler wanted them or not, what we all have chosen to do is to do the generics over the gender-specific terms. Yeah, but you're not addressing his concern. And how do we know whether our doctors are male or female? You're exactly right. I am not addressing his concern (laughs) because I think that, in fact, you don't need to know. That's correct. I mean, unless we're talking about, I don't know, the sex trade, this information that Fowler deemed so pertinent is, as you say, irrelevant. But there are places where it persists and without a whole lot of chafing. For example, actor and actress 
for whatever reason, female actors, I think by and large, do not take umbrage at being called actresses. I don't know if they've reclaimed it, but they continue to embrace it, and I'm not sure exactly why, but it just doesn't seem to have the condescension attached to it that so many of these other S-suffixed words do. I think that's right, and when you look at the data in something like Google Books, actress is holding pretty steady in terms of how often it's being used. It's the exception, not the rule. Actress and goddess, but goddess is clearly not a demeaning term. That one, I think, is seen as quite a positive term. Most of the other ESS words are declining, including a word like hostess, that we're opting for host instead. So ESS entered English from French, as you said, in Middle English period, 14th, 15th century. But there are other endings that cropped up since then, some of which sound very French, like et, E-T-T-E, which we see with words like usherette and majorette and rocket, for example. When did this ending come about, and was it intended to replace ESS? So what was its purpose? The reason et, E-T-T-E, sounds French is because it is French. Go figure. Right. And what I like about this one is that it comes into English fairly early, so we can see this on words in the, for example, 14th century, again, coming in in Middle English. It does not come to be a feminine suffix in the sense of usherette until the 19th century doesn't get momentum until the early 20th century. So when it comes into English, it comes in as a diminutive to refer to something that is small. For example, a musette, which is a small bagpipe. A kitchenette. We still use it in something like kitchenette or towelette. And by the way, can I just say here that there is an addition to the kind of condescension attached to et as applied to women, a genuine and I think heartbreaking paucity of dry towelettes in our culture. We have only the moist towelettes. Where are the dry towelettes, I ask you? Where? I'm so glad you pointed out that gap. Well, that's what I'm here for. Now, here's an interesting fact that I think many people don't realize, which is that the suffix ette, which is feminine in French, comes in also with its masculine counterpart, which is the suffix et, which is also a diminutive. And it is the suffix we see in words like tablet, which I think can feel more obvious that that's a small table. Mm-hmm. But it also appears in pocket, bullet, and sonnet. All of those are diminutives. Well, what's a pock? A sack? Yeah, it's poke. Oh, like a pig in a poke. Like a pig in a poke. And yet, this E-T ending has not retained its diminutive connotation, whereas the E-T-T-E ending has. Part of this was you see some variation in the 15th and 16th centuries between the E-T-T-E ending and the E-T ending. For example, pincet, which is a small set of tweezers, is spelled with the E-T-T-E, it's spelled P-I-N-C-E-T. English speakers don't seem to be making a big differentiation between the two suffixes. And then finally, in the end, E-T-T-E is what we now use as a diminutive. A diminutive and still also as a feminizing diminutive. I conjectured to Bob in the introduction before we spoke to you, Anne, that suffragette was coined 
by a man specifically to be condescending. Every source that I've looked at has exactly that from the Daily Mail in 1906. What I'm struck by, Mike, is that you said it is used as a feminine diminutive, which I think is what a lot of people who think we shouldn't use it would argue. The people who would say, oh, no, it's more neutral would say it's just feminine. It's not diminutive. I don't know. I feel like I'm right, though. Well, I tend to agree with you. I think suffragette was coined as a way to diminish the status of women's suffragists. For the most part, we as speakers have not embraced these ETTE words. There's the television show, The Bachelorette, which seems to be one of the only contexts in which people actually use the word bachelorette. Other than that, we tend to say single women. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them are Jewesses. Now, some years ago, maybe 20, so not the early part of the 20th century, but 20 years ago, I did a kind of whimsical story, you know, somewhere between whimsical and bitter, I'm not sure. But it was about the girls' basketball programs in the high schools of uh, rural Iowa, where the boys were the Hawks and the girls were the Hawkettes. The boys were the Braves and the girls were the Bravettes. Sometimes it got silly. The Lions, they weren't the Lionesses, they were the Lionettes. I mean, it was, it was <laughs> ridiculous. There wasn't a whole lot of agitation against the template for naming girls' teams. It struck me then as a bit of a throwback, and the, truthfully, I don't know whether those teams are so named yet today, but it would be impossible to argue that they weren't at least equal parts signifying gender and diminishment. They were just so nakedly condescending. I would agree. And as we know, sport team names are on the conservative end of the language spectrum in terms of how long it takes to change them. I agree with you. I think it's condescending. And the few times it's not condescending, it's used to be funny. The Oxford English Dictionary has this wonderful quote from Vanity Fair in 2011, and it reads, we chubbies and chubbettes in the audience can only cheer them on. Yeah, it's self-conscious. Right, intentionally cute and funny. For example, how delighted would I be if there were some woman who were making an argument similar to Fowler's that the word author is sacrosanct and it simply should not be available to mere women. If a woman were making an argument, argument, how delighted would I be to be able to call her a dickette? I mean, it would just be magnificent. Bob, that was the case for a time. In the first wave of feminism, there were women who were championing these ESS words as a way to raise the stature of women who were performing these professions, often for the first time, who were writing novels and who were gaining fame as sculptors, say, and becoming sculptresses. The sexual politics of this weren't so clear-cut in the beginning, I think, certainly of the 19th century and maybe into the latter part of the 1800s. No, I understand, Mike, and I don't want to get too caught up into the uh, fine points here, but they were actually staking out feminist grounds Mm -hmm. of wanting to bring more recognition unto the class of, of female artists, let's say, by classifying them as something special. They were not arguing that they did not deserve the designation that men use because, after all, we are but the weaker sex and undeserving. Absolutely. So, Anne, 
Trix, T-R-I-X, came about even later? Well, Trix has been in the language since the Renaissance. It comes in from Latin. In Latin, it is a suffix that can mark feminine agent nouns. So you would have the masculine administrator and the feminine administratrix. Mm -hmm. This suffix, as far as I can tell, has never gotten much momentum in English. There have been examples of the creatrix and the executrix, but executrix in the OED is last cited in 1827. It's hard to find now. The one you find in current English is dominatrix. It's the ultimately empowered Well, uh, it is, and I feel like what it's done, at least for contemporary speakers, is make this suffix highly sexual. Yeah, you know, I don't think I've ever really thought about that before, but I think you're right. There is something vaguely kind of sexualized now about that ending, tricks, because it is so associated with the BDSM culture. I know, and when, when my mom's will was in probate, that executrix, uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> really? Aviatrix? Well, do you really use the word aviatrix? Right. You don't use it anymore. That's the point, Bob. The only word, Anne is saying, the only word that we really use in common parlance now that holds on to that trick's ending is dominatrix. So you're saying that because it's the only one left, tricks is now associated with something erotic as opposed to sexual designation. Yeah, I think so. I'm going to agree with you, Anne. Well, there's a dissertation for somebody. <laughs> That's right. So, Anne, uh, let's go back all the way to Old English when our language actually had gender, right? Nouns were either feminine or masculine. And... There was an ending then that's different from the ones that we've talked about, but that's one that we'll recognize that designated a particular profession or other noun as being that of a woman. There was. It is the ancestor of the suffix that we now know as S-T-E-R, as in Webster. As in Webster, which is what, a weaver? It is a weaver. And in Old English, a Webestra was a female weaver. The Old English suffix was E-S-T-R-E. It signified a woman who did a particular action or profession. So you had a songestra, which was a female singer, or I love this word, a hopestra. This is hop, which is a female dancer. Because dancing consisted only of hopping at that point? No, it could also mean dance, but we have specified it into hopping. Or la restra, which was a female teacher. And there were male counterparts. That was a different ending. Absolutely. So the male ending was E-R-E. So you would have a, for example, sangere, which was a singer, male singer, and a songestra, which was a female singer. Now, it's my understanding that there were certain professions that were, as there are in any age, that were predominantly or exclusively done by women. And at some point through the Middle Ages, when men started to take more and more of a role in those professions, then those E-S-T-R-E or S-T-E-R, as we would say now, those words would be applied to men and they would lose their kind of female-only association. That is one of the theories that's out there for what starts to happen to these terms. And the word that's often used 
as an example, is the Old English word for someone who bakes, a backestra. Which we would call Baxter today. Right, which comes in as Baxter now. So a Baxter's a baker? Yeah. Who knew? And what we see happen starting in the Middle English period is that the S-T-E-R ending starts to get reread as a masculine ending. And once it gets read as a masculine ending, then you start to get ESS words that get attached to it. So, for example, seamstress, where you have the ESS ending attaching on top of the S-T-E-R ending. So, in other words, linguistically speaking, it's as though men are constantly trying to separate out women and designate them differently as if running away from some god-awful notion that men and women might be thought of as equals. Semestra, which would be the Old English word for a female sewer, sewer, which we would call seamster, that then becomes associated more as a male noun because more and more men are getting into the textile trade, presumably. And so to then redesignate women who are doing that job as women doing that job, we had to come up with seamstress. Exactly. And the same thing happened with songstress, because a songster, that used to be a feminine ending, but then eventually it gets an ESS attached to it. Man, men are total assholes. I'm not going to say anything in response to that. (laughs) That's an interesting observation, though. It's not as though the committee of men sat in their smoke-filled rooms saying, this situation has gotten out of control. We've lost the feminine suffix for sewing work, and we have to find another solution. It's not that men are jerks. It's that sexism is so ingrained in the culture of whatever century this is that the language struggles to find a way to continue to bake the sexism in. I think it's a really important point, because I think when you get a a lot of historical data like this, where you can see a lot of sexism at work, one of the quick responses can be, you know, what were men doing? This is men trying to keep women down, which, Bob, as you know, gives a kind of agency as if the men were all in cahoots about how the language was going to work. It is more complicated than that. The language is reflecting cultural values and patterns, and one could argue then potentially also helping to perpetuate some of those. Is it fair to say then if men were not in cahoots back then, then women are not in cahoots today? Because as the ESS and ETTE suffixes all but disappear from our language, we're seeing a curious rise in a whole set of other what you'd call prefixes, I guess. For example, man, M-A-N, in terms like mansplaining and manspreading and others like that, where they're often used in a kind of pejorative way, in a kind of cheeky way, but nonetheless are gaining traction in the language. This question of, you know, are people in cahoots? Some of the reform that we've seen in the 20th century and the early 21st century is quite conscious language reform. This is, in fact, people, and and with second wave feminism, a lot of women who have tried very consciously to change institutions, to change usage guides and grammar books to say, 
we need to use different language. If I understand this right, Anne, we were discussing the mechanism by which a suffix that applied to women in a certain trade disappeared, but the cultural sexism was so ingrained that it wound up reappearing in a slightly different form, as opposed to what Mike just described with mansplaining, which seems to me to be a a very conscious attempt to use language to create a sort of satire or or even linguistic reparation for the sins of society. Well put. You know, I got to hand it to Fowler on one thing. Although he ultimately came down on the side of a, you know, a truly retrograde philosophy, he at least had the intellectual honesty to accurately represent, and, and I think in a pretty succinct way, the right argument that he was discarding. So, you know, there's that. He's a dick, but he's a um, forthright one. And I take very seriously the question of whether we do need to know people's gender. And we're seeing right now a lot of discussion around not only do we need to know gender, but when we are talking about gender, are we oversimplifying by saying this is a male-female binary? And we are oversimplifying it. And so there's a way in which if we say we're going to use words that are gender-neutral, then we can also allow the complexity of gender to play out and not have to be identified into categories in the language. And I feel I must confess, after those very eloquent words, that in the introduction to this episode, before you came on the line, we referred to you as a lady professor. Actually, I think I was the one who read that uh, script line. And uh... Yeah. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Mike, for that. I uh, appreciate it. <laughs> so that's what, that's what you were doing before I got on the line, eh? Yeah, yeah, but I just want to say I was, I am not actually a dick. I was just playing one on the radio. And I know that both of you are doing it just for the sake of getting linguistic information out there. Thank you so much, Anne. Thanks, this was fun. All right, if you want to write to us, please do so. LexiconValley at Slate.com. That's LexiconValley at Slate.com. Please follow us on Twitter at LexiconValley and subscribe to our feed in iTunes where you can give us a rating and a review. I want to thank Ann Kurzan. She is professor at the University of Michigan and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mikey, we done here? Yeah, I think we're done. Later, Gator. <laughs>